0: Uh, well, I had planned on last week getting through, uh, we were supposed to be through chapter 1 in one week, but it took us two weeks, so this morning we are in Job chapter 2. If you have a Bible, uh, please meet me there. Uh, if you're new with us, what we do is we kind of work our way through books of the Bible section at a section, section at a time, as, uh, so to speak, and uh, we, uh, we look to keep the text in its context, listening to what God would say to us, not just as hearers, but also uh, as doers of the Word several years ago, I was on an elder team uh, with a man who was about 20 years older than I was. His name was also John. And he was a tall, thin man with, with very thick uh, gray hair and a wide smile. And uh, one day we were in a meeting, and, and John would do this a lot. When I would When I would tell a story or give an illustration, he would say, look, John, we don't need to know all the details. We don't need to know that you had a buffalo chicken sandwich at Quiznos on Thursday, and it was sunny outside, and you sat by the window. And uh, John was a certified public accountant, so for him, you know, he was very tasky, and I'm not saying that about all accountants, but this guy, he just wanted to get right to business. Don't, don't, don't need to hear any stories. I don't, don't need to hear about, you know, where you had lunch. And he said, John, we don't need all the specifics. And I smiled back at him, and I said, John, if you're going to be a good storyteller, the details matter. Specifics actually matter. And this is true, isn't it? This is true in just about every area of life. For Christmas, my kids chipped in, all four of my kids chipped in, and, and they bought me uh, tickets to uh, the Ryman uh, Auditorium, the historic uh, Ryman Auditorium in downtown Nashville to see one of my favorite bands. And so Janine and I went there last week and just had an amazing time, great seats. It was it an was, uh, incredible show. Well, afterward, I'm getting you know, bombarded with texts from my kids, how was it? Well, imagine if I just said to them, it was fine, and that was it. No, they wanted to know, how did the the band sound? What was the set list? What was the environment like? Were people engaged? Uh, They want to know, what what was it like? Details matter. Specifics matter. Well, there's no area of life, no area of conversation in which specifics matter most uh, than when we talk about God. And when we talk about God, we need to make sure that what we're saying about God actually fits with the way that God has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. And so in that case, specifics really matter when we talk about God. In fact, there was a a theologian in the second or third century by the name of Origen who was later condemned for for much of what he said. But I remember one statement, as I, I remember reading this, I couldn't forget it. He said, it's a dangerous thing to talk about God, even when what you're saying is right. His point being, When we talk about God, God's actually with us. God is real. He's alive. He's with us. He hears what we say, and He cares what we say about Him. Now, that's particularly relevant uh, this morning as we look at a a fairly difficult passage of Scripture, and one in which God says some things about Himself that really require uh, a very specific uh, explanation. And so we're going to be, as I mentioned in Job 2 this morning, we're going to look at three things we're going to look at God's wisdom, Satan's assumption, and Job's friend's good decision. It would be one of the only good decisions uh, they make. So God's wisdom, Satan's assumption, and Job's friend's good decision. Uh, let me start just by reading verses uh, 1 and 2 of Job chapter 2. Here reads the word of the Lord. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. All right, so we have round two, so to speak, of this heavenly council this heavenly court, assembled where the sons of God are there. We saw early on the sons of God are most likely the angels, as well as, uh, in Hebrew, the Satan, Satan, the accuser. Um, Now, there's a sense in which, you've probably heard me say this before, in which preaching is dialogical. It's 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 an ongoing dialogue, which doesn't mean that, you know, I ask for your verbal feedback or questions during a message, or I don't ask for you to shout things out at me, although that has happened to me over the years. Uh, but that's not what I mean by that. What I mean is I preach a message, and then you know, throughout the week I get questions. And uh, sometimes I get multiple que- sometimes the same question multiple times. Well, that happened over the last couple of weeks. Several of you asked the same question. It was a very good question, a fantastic question. Um, and it went like this. How is it possible for Satan to be in God's presence when God cannot be the, in the presence of sin? And again, it's a great question, but it is based on a misunderstanding. To say that God cannot be in the presence of sin is not quite accurate. Preachers say this all the time. I'm sure I've said it. It's not really true. I don't know exactly where that comes from. Maybe from uh, the book of Habakkuk, where the prophet says, Your eyes about God, your eyes are too pure to look at evil. But then in the next verse, he says, Then why do you keep looking at evil, in essence? And so that's kind of a not a great place to, to get that theology from. I think what preachers mean when they say that, that God cannot be in the presence of sin, is that he cannot allow sin to go ignored or unpunished. He must deal with sin. He cannot countenance sin. He cannot uh, dismiss sin as if it's nothing. If we're going to be in God's presence forever, our sin must be dealt with. Our sin must be punished and For those in Christ, it was a punishment that was uh, heaped on Jesus Christ in our place. So in that sense, yes, God cannot be in the presence of unchecked, unaddressed sin, sin that's not been dealt with. However, this doesn't mean that whenever sin is around, God has to close his eyes or quickly leave, so to speak. Technically, God doesn't have eyes or a body. He's spirit, John 4 tells us. Besides that, God is always fully present everywhere at the same time. He is omnipresent. There's no place where God isn't always fully present. So can God be in the presence of sin? Yes, He's in the presence of sin all the time due to His omnipresence. Believers still sin. Unbelievers still sin. Evil is all over this world, and God, of course, is with us. He's omnipresent. So if God can't be in the presence of... We, we must say, if God couldn't be in the presence of sin or sinners, then the incarnation could never have taken place. Because Jesus uh, is God. Christ the God-man was around sinners all the time. The Bible doesn't say that God cannot be around sin or sinners, but only in the sense that God cannot leave sin unaddressed. So I, I answer that question because, again... Several of you have asked me that through the week, and I think it was a great question. As it relates to Satan, uh, his defeat and destruction uh, are already secure by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So his rebellion has been dealt with already, and he will one day be forever uh, conquered and chained. But at this point in the story, Satan is there in, in God's presence with the sons of God or the angels. And God again says to him, where have you come from? I mentioned already, it's not because God doesn't know where Satan was or what he was doing. This is a way to, uh, to engage uh, Satan in a dialogue. And God repeats the question that he has previously asked Satan. So look at verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, "'Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil?' He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. So this is basically the equivalent of God saying to Satan, I told you so. You said he only worshiped me because of all that he had and all the ways that I blessed him. But I allowed you, the Lord says, to take everything from him, and he still worships me. God says, I told you that his devotion to me was real, that it was genuine. He was genuine in his love for me. He still holds fast his integrity. And then God says something shocking, I think. He says, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Now, I say that's shocking because it seems like God is saying that Satan talked God into doing something that God didn't really want to do. So, is God saying that he can be manipulated? Is God saying that he's open to being conned or cajoled? The answer, of course, is no. For centuries, theologians have celebrated, and in fact taken great comfort in, what's called the impassibility of God. Uh, Passibility, which is the opposite, is the susceptibility to be acted upon, coerced, injured, or manipulated. So, M is that negative prefix, which means that God does not experience a change in character or will, nor does He suffer, nor can He be injured, nor can He be acted upon, nor can He be manipulated. Now, this doesn't mean to say that God is impassable. It doesn't mean that He's you know, stoic or, or apathetic or unmoved by what His creatures go through, but that His emotions are actually self-originated. He is maximally alive at all times. He is his attributes in infinite measure. So impassibility means that neither God's love, nor affection, nor his character, nor his own will ever change, nor his good and wise uh, plan for his own creatures, his own children. So how then could God say to Satan, you incited me against Job to destroy him? Well, I like uh, the best definition or explanation I can find was by the 18th century English minister, John Gill, who explains it this way. He writes, It is not that Satan could work upon God so as to cause him to change his mind and will, who is unchangeable in his nature and purposes. But the sense is, he made a motion to him. He proposed it, requested it, and entreated urged it with importunity, uh, was very solicitous to have it done, And he prevailed and succeeded according to God's own determinate counsel and will, though only in part, for he moved him to destroy him. So Satan pleaded with God to put Job to the test, and God did so, but only because that was God's sovereign plan and design all along. And to show that God was not being manipulated or uh, cajoled by Satan, God only goes so far with this. Satan wanted God to destroy Job. But God wouldn't do it. Now, here's our first point this morning as it relates to God's wisdom. God permits Satan's evil and malicious schemes only to the extent that they serve God's wise and holy purposes. So, in a mysterious way, which is pretty incredible, God actually uses, by his own decree, Satan's machinations for his own good. Now, I think when we talk about Satan, the devil, that Christians tend to easily veer off into, you know, one of two ditches. And the first ditch, I think, is to kind of blame Satan for everything we go through. And you, you've probably met people like this, or maybe that's your own inclination. You know, everything is the devil's fault, and the devil maybe do it, and, and so on. And I've seen this a lot in in ministry. I, I, I very specifically remember meeting with a woman. I had an appointment with her. I didn't know what it was about. She came in my office and walked in, immediately looked under the couch. But thought, this is kind of odd. Maybe she's looking for some loose chain, change or some M&Ms or something. And she looked under like, There was nothing there. She started picking up the pillows and held them up to the light. I thought, what, what is this woman doing? And she was very concerned that Satan might be sort of, you know, in the furniture, so to speak. So she was very much... And as I talked to her, what I understood was everything that happened in her life, every negative thing was, was Satan's fault. Um, now, of course... The, the the other ditch, and C.S. Lewis talks about this in the Screw Tape letters, is to is to kind of believe or or look at this, you know, kind of dismiss the notion that some pitchfork carrying troublemaker with horns and a red suit could ever cause any real harm. And so the other extreme is to kind of you know laugh at the idea that there actually is a devil. Um, well, the Bible makes it very clear Satan is real. There is a real uh, enemy. Now, he's not, he's not omnipresent like God is, but he does have his minions. He does have his demons, um, and yet, and, and he's, he is walking around seeking whom he may devour. In fact, what does he, Satan actually say to God when God asks him, "Where I've been walking to and fro, which is exactly what Peter would say in the New Testament, Satan does. So there is a real devil, um, but he has no ultimate authority even in his evil schemes, uh, even the Satan's evil schemes, God is working to bring about holy and wise purposes for his own children. So what I would say by way of application, if, if your tendency is to blame the devil for all your problems, I guess the good thing is you, you believe there's a devil, so that's good. Um, but according to Jesus' brother James, you might start actually by looking at your own heart first rather than blaming the devil. There is a selfishness in us. There is a waywardness in us. Uh, There is an impurity of motive in us that we really don't tend to realize. This is why a word, it's a hyphenated word that comes up over and over and over in my family, is we talk about the need to be self-suspicious. And so, you know, if you if you feel like everything you're going through is Satan's problems, you might want to uh, reconsider that, that maybe you know, there's some, something going on in your own heart that you're uh, not aware of. I was talking with a pastor friend this week who told me about a church in his, in his area that uh, was once 1,000 people strong, and now it's down to 85 people on a Sunday, and that's because three of the last four pastors had committed sexual sin, had been unfaithful to their respective uh, wives. And then he said to me, it seems like this place is under demonic attack. And I thought about that, and I didn't, you know, I wasn't a jerk. I didn't argue with him, but I thought, well, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, that, that that may be true. That could very well be true. Um, or there could be something else going on. Maybe there's a culture that totally lacks accountability and sort of mutual relationship. Maybe the, there's a culture where the pastor is elevated and... and what he says, he sort of always uh, is always right. Or, or maybe these were men who weren't actually really even called into pastoral ministry, but seized an opportunity to gain uh, a name for themselves. So, I mean, it could be any number of things. But uh, what I'm saying there is, yes, Satan is real. He is vicious. He is powerful. But here's the deal. Neither sin, Satan, nor evil people frustrate God's sovereign plan. They only serve in a mysterious way to accomplish it. I like what one theologian writes. People lift their hand to rebel against the Most High only to find that their rebellion is unwitting service in the wonderful designs of God. The hardened disobedience of men's hearts leads not to the frustration of God's plans, but to their fruition. So that's deep stuff, and I'll try to explain a little bit better as we move along. Look at verses 4 through 6. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So when God commends Job to Satan and says, Look at this guy. See, you were wrong. He still worships me. He still loves me. He's still devoted uh, to me even though you've taken everything from him. Satan says, skin for skin. Now, this is a very, very odd Hebrew uh, phrase, um, one that pretty much no one knows what it means. Um, one commentator calls it a riddle. Another calls it an enigmatic expression. Another calls it a mystery. What exactly is meant by this, this uh, statement, skin for sin, skin is not known. But the next few verses make it clear that Satan is calling for God to bring about sickness and physical pain to Job to really test him, you know, in Satan's estimation. Because Satan believes that people will do anything to avoid physical suffering, anything to avoid physical pain. Old Testament scholar Trimper Longman writes, Satan's very cynical view is that people only really deep down care about themselves. People will give all they have to preserve their life. Now, I think we have to say it is, Satan's perspective is cynical, but it's not that cynical, is it? We found out more clearly than ever during the height of the pandemic just how self-centered uh, the human heart truly is. What's the first thing that we thought when, when we heard that someone had COVID? It wasn't, oh no, I, I, I hope they get better quickly, or oh no, I, I need to pray for them. It was almost certainly when was the last time that I was around that person? And did I shake his hand? And did he cough in my direction? So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a cynical view, but it's not that cynical. Satan has assumed that not only are we deeply self-centered people who are most concerned about our own health, which is pretty much right, but also that no one would ever surrender his own health or his own life in the service to God or for someone else. But Satan is misguided here. Some of you, the wheels are already turning. Not only would Job prove Satan wrong, but the one to whom Job points proved Satan wrong, there was one who willingly surrendered his own health, indeed his own body, his own life, in the service of God and for the good of others. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and the, the topography of the Garden of Gethsemane is fascinating. Janine and I were there in 2018, and at night, it's deeply haunting. I mean, it's a very haunting place. Jesus is there on the eve of his crucifixion. He's with his disciples, and all of a sudden, this battalion of soldiers comes, you know, kind of from around the trees, out of the darkness, into view, And they're led by, this group of soldiers is led by Judas, one of uh, Jesus' own disciples. And they have come with their weapons brandished to arrest Jesus and take him away. John 18.4 tells us, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you speak? John tells us that Jesus, he knew what was going to happen he was not oblivious or ignorant as to what was going to happen. And what did he do? He went forward toward his accuser. Martin Luther, the great uh, reformer, found this to be the most fasc- one of the most fascinating uh, aspects of the whole sort of betrayal narrative. Jesus didn't shrink back into the crowd. He didn't play a, a cat and mouse game with the imperial troops. He stepped forward out of the crowd into the limelight where he would be apprehended. And in that moment, Jesus did what Satan assumed no one would ever do. Jesus would subject himself to physical pain, intense agony, of course, well beyond that, and he would give up his own health and life for others. Remember, Jesus didn't have to give himself up. He didn't have to die. He could have called a host of angels to deliver him and set him free. But he didn't. He came forward. He willingly surrendered his life. He offered himself up. Now, the voluntariness of Jesus' surrender is very important if we really understand something of Jesus' mercy. In this moment, as in every moment of his earthly ministry, Jesus was a willing sufferer. He gave himself up. He suffered willingly. Why? Because those who have committed sins against God, which includes each one of us, must pay the price for their sins. The price is death, eternal separation from God. But Jesus, out of love for us, the sinless one, the one who'd never sinned, actually gave up his own life to pay for our rebellion. So Jesus willingly surrendered his life out of love, certainly love for the Father, but also love for his own. He loved us and gave himself up for us eagerly. We could even say gladly in order to make atonement for our sins. He did what he did, the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, that is to say for the exaltation which was to await, um, but also he did what he did because he loves us. He did what he did not as a pathetic and helpless martyr who suffered a cruel fate that he could never have avoided, but as one with full knowledge of what was in store for him. So here's our second point as it relates to Satan's assumption. Contrary to Satan's assumption, Jesus willingly surrendered his health and life so that we could receive full and eternal life. So Satan believes and has made the assumption there's just nobody who's going to give up their own life. There's nobody who's going to, going to surrender their own health in the service of God and still worship God and still, be, uh, and still glorify God. A person may uh, surrender his possessions, Satan assumes, but not his health, not his life. And yet Jesus' love, again for the Father and for us, compelled him to surrender his health and life as a sacrifice for us, and we get the benefit. We get the benefit. Why would the perfect Son of God give His life for sinful and rebellious people? The answer is because Jesus loves us in a way that no one else loves, to a level of sacrifice that no one else could ever attain. It's like the, the line in the great song we sing, How Deep the Father's Love. It says, Why should I gain from His reward?" The death, the resurrection, the exaltation of Christ. I cannot give an answer, the song answers in return. But this I know with all my heart his wounds have paid my ransom. Those who are in Christ are free from the wrath of God, spared from the condemnation of God because of the person and work of Christ. We live in a, if you're in Christ, you live in a settled state of being right with God and of being fully loved by God. There's nothing you've ever done that can remove you from the love of God. There's nothing you've ever done that will jeopardize your standing with God. There's nothing you can ever do that will Render you unloved and apart from God if you are in Christ. You are forever forgiven. And some of you need to hear that this morning. You, right now, you are forgiven in Christ. That sin that you can't stop thinking about, which you keep falling into again and again, God has already forgotten, so to speak. He remembers our sins no more. We are His treasured possession and He loves us with a piercing and a steadfast love that will never change. And this love is ours, this forgiveness is ours, because Jesus did what Satan assumed no one would ever do. He gave up his life so that we could truly live. So all that to say, Satan was wrong again. Now look at verses 7 through 10. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now, as a side note, advice for young men, it's not typically good to respond to your wife by saying you speak as a foolish woman. Uh, but if your wife tells you to curse God and die, you know, maybe it's appropriate. Uh, Job says to his wife, who was actually in all likelihood grieving with him. She wasn't trying to be snarky here. She was actually, she saw what her husband was going through and she's grieving with him. And, and she tells him to curse God. He says, look, you don't get it. You don't get it. Good comes from God and so does evil. We cannot receive one without the other. But again, as I talked about before, the need for specificity in the language that we use to talk about God, that does beg a question, how does evil come from the hand of God when God himself is good and all his ways are perfect and pure? Well, what that means as we talked about a little bit last week and also a few moments ago, even the decree of evil is part of God's sovereign plan, so that no evil deed that happens to you or in our world is random or meaningless or pointless or something that God just sort of observes from a distance. It's all by God's decree, but that doesn't make God culpable for the evil that takes place in the world because God doesn't commit any evil act nor is there any darkness in him so even though stay with me here i know this is i know this is tough even though evil fits in god's divine plan those who do evil do so on their own accord and by their own volition so those so to say another way those who do evil they do exactly what they want to do they're not coerced or forced in any way they do so freely in that sense And yet, and yet, in a way that is ordained by God for the special care of those he loves. The Westminster Confession says it this way, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such has, such hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. And that's all really helpful, but we need this, this next part. And yet so, as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous... Neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So all this, all that, to say, you may be saying, you know, I, I don't know. Like, how can that be? And I'm saying, if that, if you're wrestling with that, that's okay. That's okay. Um, it's okay if your brain hurts thinking about this. But what you can know for sure is that God is holy and pure in all His ways he never sins, and he never wrongs anyone. And at the the same time, the evil that you experience is mysteriously part of God's sovereign plan, and it is for your good. It may not be for your immediate enjoyment, but it is for your ultimate good. About 10 or 11 years ago, in this church that I serve, there was a guy who worked in our uh, tech ministry. He was late 70s. His name was Hal. And he was a really grouchy dude. I mean, almost all the time. Um, but he had, a, he had sort of a dry sense of humor. And he would just about, a, he, he, would, he, was, he insisted on doing the slides because, in his, his estimation, nobody else could do it right. Um, and he wasn't wrong, actually. I mean, we, we did have a lot of, way too many uh, slide mistakes. Unlike here, whoever's back there. Um, but this guy would just insist on doing that. But every Sunday, he would bring me a comic strip just about every Sunday. And it was usually, I don't know, Farside or Peanuts or something or some obscure thing that he found online. And uh, he brought one, one that he brought to me. And I, I actually Googled to try to find this, but I couldn't. But it's a comic with um, several Christians in a Roman Colosseum with a lion lunging toward them. And the caption said, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And the point being, he thought that was hysterical. Obviously, you don't. Um, The point being that telling someone God has a wonderful plan for your life requires a little context, doesn't it? It requires some context. It it doesn't mean, or it it may not mean, health, uh, perfect relationships, constant happiness, or even a glorious ending to your earthly life. God's plan for you may be, like the plan it was for the majority of Christ's first disciples, uh, it may be that you're persecuted for your faith. It may even be that you're killed for your faith. I hope that's not the case for any of us, um, but it could be. Even so, we can say with confidence that God has our ultimate good at heart. And the plan that He is working out for us is for our ultimate good. Uh, which, of course, will result for those who, us, those who are in Christ in us being with the Lord Jesus forever in all the ways that we just sang about together and talked about on this new earth uh, where righteousness will forever reign. But even now on this sin-broken planet, even evil serves His holy purposes. Now, let's look at the final section, verses 11 through 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of the, all this evil that had come upon him, They came each from his own place, Uh, Eliphaz, uh, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, uh, the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. So Job's friends arrive. We're going to talk more about them in the upcoming weeks, but they're completely distraught. They they see Job from a distance. They don't even recognize him. He has scratched himself to where he is bleeding and swollen, and covered in dirt, and scabbed over, and they don't even recognize him. They don't know this is their friend. He's sitting there, he looks unrecognizable, and when his friends finally do approach him, notice they don't say anything. This is the only right thing they do. They don't say anything. They're doing great until they open their mouths with their wisdom. The Jewish people had a practice called sitting shiva, where people would surround those who were mourning, often sitting on low stools, and they just would be present, not saying anything. Now, Job is not a Jew, but this practice extended beyond cultures and dialects, and for good reason, and that is there's, there's comfort in human presence. Job's friends would eventually put their, foot, their feet in their mouths, but not immediately. First, they'd just sit with Job. And they don't say anything. That's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to just sit with someone and, and be silent. Several years ago, I guess it was probably thir- 12 or 13 years ago, I had to make a cross country move, and there's a guy in the church that I didn't even know really. Maybe had one or two exchanges with him, very brief exchanges. And he said to me, he said, hey, I'll uh, sent me an email and said, hey, I'll, I was moving cross country, so 30 hours in a car. He said, hey, I'd love to ride along with you and just provide some company. And I thought, like, there's no way I could do that. I mean, this is a guy I don't even know. I mean, that's going to be like 29 and a half hours of awkward silence. I mean, I don't even know. You know, so I I I asked Janine, like, I don't know, what do I say? How do I say this guy, you know, thanks but no thanks. And, um, you know, I didn't know him at all. And so I thought, I mean, I just can't talk for that long. And I know this is going to be awkward. Well, it's hard to sit in silence. With someone. And so, as a result of that awkwardness, what we tend to do is we we try to help our underst- our friends understand the why of what they're going through. When we don't know, we don't have any idea. Or we offer platitudes that don't really help. What they need, what people who are hurting need often is just our loving presence, a human presence, a listening ear. Now, of course, there are times when we're asked a question, and we provide biblical counsel. We, we go to the Scriptures. We provide help from God's Word, um, and we should be prepared to give it. But most of the time, someone who is in acute uh, trauma or pain, what they need is just someone with them, someone to vent to, someone to cry with, someone to hug, someone to pray with, just someone that they know is here for me. As pastor and author Brian Croft reminds, too few words are much more profitable than too many. Those suffering will feel more loved by us if we sympathize, not rationalize. Therefore listen, don't solve." I may have to get that quote tattooed on my arm somewhere, because I just want to solve it. and I just want to say, here's what you need to do, A through E, take five minutes for this, take eight minutes for this. I just want to solve it, but and that's really not that helpful often. So sometimes it's just better to be present and listening. And Job's friends, again, this is what they do. Now, one other noteworthy thing here is that Job's friends are not the only ones who are silent. Notice that God is silent. Now, we don't, Job doesn't know about this heavenly court going on behind the scenes. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know that, that God is in this. He is at his lowest point ever, and there's not a word from God. Now, God will speak, just not at this moment. But it is clear that God is there. And we know from the narrator that God is at work. Job doesn't know that God has protected his life from Satan's request to destroy him. Job Job doesn't know what God is doing behind the scenes. Only we, the readers, know that. But God is there. He is active and He is at work. Here's our final point this morning. God's apparent silence does not equal ambivalence or inactivity on His part. Ambivalence just means you don't really care. God's apparent silence does not equal ambivalence or act inactivity on his part. Just because we don't feel like God is there doesn't mean he's not there. Just because we don't feel like his presence is with us, it doesn't mean that his presence is not with us. Just because we don't feel like we hear from him, it doesn't mean that he is uncaring and distant. To the contrary, God is at work in ways we may never see on this side of heaven, in, may, in ways we may never understand here on earth, but he's doing something, again, that is for his glory and our good. We we have some amazing uh, quilters here at Capshaw, some people who are very, very gifted in this area. My wife's actually one of them. And, you know, you look at... Uh, that's, that's not a joke. That's serious. Who's laughing at that? I'll show you some of the quilts she made. Um, you know, we... She's not as good as some. Oh no, I shouldn't say that. Why did I say that? Um, she's the best quilter we have here. Um, but you know, you look at a quilt, and, and when a quilt's being made, and you look at the back side of it, the reverse, you see the strings, and you see things that look random and bunched up, and you know, you think, how could this be beautiful? And yet, you know, when the quilt is done and you see it completed, you realize that that every stitch had a plan and every thread served a purpose, and every weave was intentional. Well, when it looks like, uh, metaphorically speaking, the strings are hanging everywhere in our lives, and there seems to be no pattern or plan, God is weaving a beautiful tapestry that only He can see at the moment. But when He finally finishes His masterpiece and flips over His handiwork, all the chaos will make sense. Now, it may not be immediate and it may not even be on this earth, but we will one day see that God is doing a beautiful thing and doing things that we can never even imagine. That's how God works. And if you have a hard time believing it, see point number two. God's love was manifest among us in such a profound and powerful way that he sent his son to die for our sins. Here we are needy and sinful and helpless people. And yet God loved in such a way that he said, I'm going to bring them to me. I'm going to reconcile them. I'm going to make them right with me. And I'm going to do it at the great cost of sending my son. May God help us to believe it. Let's pray.